prayers. All right, Psalm 51. Psalm 51, probably the most well-known psalm on the confession of sin. All right, so get ready to get convicted tonight because we're talking about sin. All right, (laughs) that's right. Let's go ahead and pray before we read Psalm 51. Lord, thank you for bringing us here. We thank you for your word. Thank you for how it opens our eyes to truth, uh, guides us, uh, convicts us of sin, uh, uh, so that we may enjoy and rejoice in your salvation. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, guide us in your word, that we would understand it clearly, and that we would apply it to our lives as we study it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Psalm 51. The, the, the superscription at the top gives the exact situation in which this was written, which adds much more weight to the psalm. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, after the prophet Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow." Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or else I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. If you are familiar with the story of David, you know exactly what that superscription is referring to. What some commentators say is probably the worst combination of transgressions committed by a believer in Scripture. David the king sending off his armies and staying behind, commits adultery with Bathsheba, and then to hide his sin, has her husband killed in battle to cover it. We looked at Psalm 32 several weeks ago that uh, there's a good chance was also written in connection with this story in David's life. And we see how he kept silent for a long period of time. And then he acknowledges his sin and, and God forgives him. Psalm 51 is a is a fuller and longer uh, treatment on the heart of David, the broken, repentant heart of David, when he 
is confronted. And you will notice that this happens after he has been confronted. It says specifically when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had committed the sin. And I think it would be worth it for us to consider the, the story um, that is referenced here. This is found in your Bibles in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And you're welcome to turn there if you like. If you, uh, if you know the, the story, Nathan the prophet confronts David how? What does he do? How does he... He tells him a story, doesn't he? And he talks about a poor man that had one lamb and, and, and the rich man had many lambs and he stole the, the, the lamb from the poor man uh, to feed his guests. And uh, this angers David and he says, who is this man? Show me where he is so that I can put him to death. Isn't it incredible how clearly we see other people's sins? And, and Nathan responds by saying, you are that man. Direct confrontation toward the king of Israel. And, and immediately upon confrontation, Nathan starts to list off the consequences that David will experience. And he says, the sword will not depart from your house. And then verse 13, we read David's confession. He's, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord, and the child who, you is, who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Verse 13 David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Immediately after, Nathan says, you've been forgiven. And everything we read in Psalm 51 can be crammed into that short phrase of David, I have sinned against the Lord. All, this, all these words that, are, that we read in Psalm 51 are not uttered by David to Nathan, but it's spoken in his heart to God. And it says that this happened after Nathan the prophet had gone to him. And so this is most likely happening. David is writing this, reflecting back on that time when he was confronted by, with his sin. And he expounds, he reveals what was going on in his heart when he uttered those words, I have sinned against the Lord. And we notice that in Psalm 51, there is no mention of his being forgiven. He's requesting forgiveness. And so you could even say this is happening between those two phrases, between I have sinned and Nathan saying, you are forgiven. Everything we read here fits right into verse 13. And Psalm 51 gives us one of the clearest pictures of what it means to humbly confess and humbly repent of our sin. And so let's jump into this passage. Let's look at the structure real quick of our psalm to understand what's going on. Verses 1 and 2, you could say is an introductory cry. This is a summary of, uh, of what he's going to be saying. Verses uh, 3 through 6 would be his confession. This is where he admits his sin. Verses 7 through 12 would be his petition. After confessing, he cries out to the Lord to cleanse him and forgive him. And then after his, his petition, verses 13 through 17, would be a vow. What he promises to do after he is forgiven, 
verses 18 through 19 would be the conclusion, the conclusion, the epilogue, if you will. So that's the basic structure of Psalm 51. Let's start by looking at that introductory cry. And here we really see the whole message of the book summed up into a couple of verses. I think my computer is frozen. Of course it is. <laughs> Don't say it. Don't say it. Sorry, right, we can still read it. It says, verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to the abund- your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And I am going to, this is going to bug me to death. So let me see what we got here. Task manager, okay, shut down, all right, restart. We'll see what happens here. Apologize for that. If it was Apple, it would be worse. All right, I think we're good. I think we're good. It's coming. There we go. See, Microsoft comes through in the end. All right. (laughs) Oh, it doesn't like that screen there. Must be an Apple projector. Um, (laughs) All right. We see in these first two verses, first of all, his reason for his cry. Why is he crying out? Well, it's very clear. It's because he has sin in his life. What words do we see to describe his sin in verses 1 and 2? We see three. Yep, there's one. Iniquity and sin. Good. And each one of these really highlight a different aspect of what sin is. I'm sure you've heard, many of you have maybe heard this detailed, but transgression is this idea of willful rebellion. He's saying, I chose this. This was my decision. I knew it was wrong, and I did it anyway. We've been there. Iniquity refers to straying from the standard. And then sin, this general, this general idea of sin, communicates the idea of missing the mark. You've heard that, I'm sure. Missing the mark. And so confession, we see, has a clear view of sin. He, he, he is not sugarcoating this, and he's not going to sugarcoat it even more as we continue through this psalm. Um, he, he says, this is the reason for why I'm crying out to you. I have transgression, I have iniquity, I have sin. And, and you see each one is prefaced by that, my, my, my. He's taking personal ownership of this, and this is exactly what we should do in our confession. That when we cry out to God because of our sins, we, we take ownership of that. The content of his cry, what is he asking for? Mercy. Good, we see that in verse 1. Whoops, don't want that in red. That's not cool. Man, tell you what. Sometimes you just can't beat a 
whiteboard and a marker. You know what I mean? All right. Well, it's going to be in red for now. All right. There we go. Um, Mercy on me. What else is he asking for? Do you see any other requests in these first two verses? That's, That's the basis of his request. But what is he asking for? He's asking for mercy. What else is he asking for? Cleansing. Okay. What else? Blot out. One more. Wash me. Okay. So, have mercy on me. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Mercy has this idea of this undeserved favor. He's saying, God, I don't deserve this but have mercy on me. When he says, blot out my transgressions, we often think of this as you know, blotting excess ink off of a page, right? And that's kind of a westernified, Englishified version of this Hebrew word. The, the, the Hebrew word originally carries the idea of scraping off or removing, like scraping a slate clean is the idea. And so it's almost this picture of sins etched in a stone and then being scraped off. And he's saying, God, blot out, scrape off, remove my sin. Wash me. It's a, this is a term that refers to cleaning laundry. Cleanse me. This, is, this carries the idea of, of connected with ritual purifying. He's saying, God, I need to be cleansed. I need your mercy. He's saying, get rid of my sin. This means we cannot atone or remove for our own sins, can we? We cannot say, God, help me take care of my sin. Help me blot out my sin. Help me wash my sin. Help me make up for my sin. We can't do that. We need God to show mercy, this undeserved favor on us, to blot out and wash and cleanse me of my sin. It's all of God, not of me. Now, some of you were alluding to this. Now we get to get to it here. And we're still in red. It won't let me change. The basis of his cry. What is the basis of his request? That's right. And how do we know that? Because of this important word right here, according to your steadfast love. So his request, mercy, is based on this foundation, your steadfast love. Now, by now, I really hope you guys know this Hebrew word. Chesed, right? With the, the spitting. This is, this is covenant faithful loyalty. He says, on the basis of your steadfast love. So he's calling on God's unchanging commitment to him. God, you promised. And then what else does he base his request on? Abundant mercy. I actually prefer the King James rendition of this. According to the multitude of thy tender mercies. That that this is the deepest feelings of love. Think of... Another King James phrase, uh, bowels of mercies, right? It's the idea of the, just the deepest, most deeply felt feelings of love and compassion. This is what David bases his request of forgiveness on. Not only his covenant faithfulness, his steadfast love, but also his deep, tender mercies. How could God have such deeply felt compassion for someone as sinful as me. For someone as sinful as David. 
That's, that's who He is. That is God. And you may think, like, how, could, how could David have the courage, the gall, to call on God's tender compassion and love for him after such a heinous crime? But it's who God is. And so here we see the basis of this cry. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. And so we see that we are, that, that we are moving into verse 3, his confession. And I think I'm frozen again. All right, I'll keep talking as I fiddle. All right, what is the confession? What, what is confession? Let me ask with that question. What is confession, if you were to define it? What did you say, Susan? As saying the same thing as someone else, or in this case, the same thing as God. Okay, what else might we define confession as? Okay, taking responsibility for your sin, absolutely. Any other thoughts here? Admitting guilt. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually looked, I can't remember which, uh, which message it, this was that we looked at, but uh, it's this idea of acknowledging, it could be acknowledging a good thing, it could be acknowledging a bad thing, um, either confessing your faith in Christ or confessing your sin to God. Um, and so that's what confession is. This is exactly what David is saying right here, verses 3 through 6. Verse 3, if you look at it, he begins by acknowledging his sin to God. And he, and he says this by acknowledging that he, he knows his sin. It's clear to him. Let's see if it's working now. No, not quite. In fact, in the Hebrew... It says, I know my sins, my, I know my transgressions. The Hebrew takes that, that personal pronoun, I, and makes it independent. Sometimes when Hebrew, in Hebrew, you'll, you'll combine the pronoun with the word itself. But when you separate the two, you're communicating something very specific. You're emphasizing that pronoun. And so he's saying, I know. So he's saying, this is, I know exactly what I'm doing. I know exactly what I did. And, and there's no getting around it. And so he takes that personal responsibility. I'm so sorry. You know what? When in doubt, restart. All right. So he says, my sin is ever before me, continually before me. He's, and you know this, if you've, if you've been struggling with sin, it's just always in front of your face, isn't it? And, and, and you may experience a moment in time where you kind of forget about it or you kind of go on your merry way and you're having a good day and then all of a sudden it comes back to you and it's right in front of your face. And David is acknowledging this. He's accepting it. He says, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. And then verse 4 is interesting. It says, against you and you only have I sinned and done this great evil in your sight. Has that struck anyone as strange before? Why does that strike you as strange? He did it against Bathsheba, did it against Uriah. So what's going on here? Is he ignoring the hurt that he has caused other people and saying, God, it's only, it's only, I only sinned against you. It's between me and you and no one else. What's going on here? Yes, Colleen. I think he knows that God's the yeah, I, I, he, out of all the people that he has sinned against, form, first and foremost, it is God. 
And that's not to that's that's not to say that he does not acknowledge that he sinned against others, but who's he talking to? He's talking to God. And whose law has he broken? God's. And so I think that's what's being communicated here when he says, against you and you only have I sinned. He's, we're asking the question, well, whose law has he broken? Whose character has he maligned? We saw that in 2 Timothy 12, right? That you have despised the Lord. That's what Nathan told David. You have despised the Lord. And so, yes, he has, he has committed this great sin um, against other people. But first and foremost, it's against his God. In fact, you actually see him alluding to, where am I? Psalm 50, that's the wrong direction. There we go. You see him alluding to his evil against others in that word evil. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This word for evil communicates sinful acts that cause pain to others. So he is communicating, he is acknowledging that his acts were evil, that they caused pain. But what he's doing in verse 4 is he's accepting accountability before God. He's standing before the judge and saying, I stand before you as a guilty sinner and I've sinned against you. The second phrase in verse 4 is is actually also confusing. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Is this saying, I sinned so that God would appear blameless? It looks like it. I sinned against you so that you may be justified. Any idea what is what he's saying here? He's saying he'll take the punishment hmm. that God thinks was needed in his case. Okay. I think, I think Linda is correct. Um, it might help. The construction of this phrase uh, in Hebrew is, is awkward, but it might help if you do this. See if it'll let me change colors. Hey, look at that. All right. Um, If you provide, I say these things so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So the first part, he's saying against you and you only have I sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. And I say that so that you may be justified in your words, blameless in your judgment. So he's taking full responsibility. He's saying, this is me. I did it. And, I, and I'm not faulting you with it. I'm standing before you just like Linda said, accepting whatever uh, consequence or punishment is coming my way. You are blameless. You're justified in your words. And whatever you speak out of your words, they're justified because I stand here as a sinner. And this really highlights an important element of our confession, that true confession of sin does not hide from consequences. You do not say, God, I'm confessing so that I can wiggle my way out of a difficult situation or make my life easier. That's not humility. That's not a broken spirit. A broken spirit stands before God and says, God, I blew it. I did what is evil in your sight, and I stand before you as a sinner, and whatever you say will be justified. Whatever, whatever you say, you will be blameless in your deeds. Confession humbly acknowledges that and humbly receives whatever consequences come your way. And David had some serious consequences that came his way. And so even in his forgiveness, he, he wanted forgiveness more than anything. He was even willing to accept those consequences. Are you willing to accept consequences in your confession? Now here's an interesting thing. Verse 5 and 6, it says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. 
Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Verse 5, what's he saying there? I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Right, so what he's not saying, he's not saying that he had an illegitimate birth. He's not saying that the consequences surrounding my birth were sinful. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying that I was born with a certain nature. I was born with a sin nature. In other words, if you were to divide up verses 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, it would go like this. I have sinned because I'm a sinner. It's not the other way around. It's not because I'm a sinner, I I have sinned. I'm sorry, no. Scratch that. I have sinned because I'm a sinner, not I'm a sinner because I have sinned. Yes, that was correct. All right. In other words, it's not the acts, the wrong acts that I do that create me, make me a sinner. I do wrong things because I am born a sinner. I am born with a sin nature. Now again, this isn't saying that a small infant that is born is guilty of acts of iniquity. Right? The Bible talks about, about uh, that was a well-timed thunder. <laughs> the Bible talks about uh, in, the innocence of, of, of infants. But what it is saying is that we are born with a nature a nature towards sin that will inevitably lead to sinful deeds because, we, because of the curse of sin uh, in this world. And so he acknowledges, I was born in sin and I'm a sinner. Verse 6, I believe, is, has a parallel construction to verse 5. You even see that in behold, repeated. I think when it talks about you delight in truth and the inward being, you even see some similar language here, inward being, secret heart, talking, and then, and then the, the idea of birth, I think what, it, what is being communicated here is that we see in verse 5, his sin nature, verse 6, God's perfect design, his intention being so much better and higher than what we can ever achieve, that, that we were made in the image of God. And yet we are also born sinners. And we see both of these truths right here in verse 6. It does point to the fact that he delights in truth in the most inward being. He doesn't delight in just surface level truth or going through deeds and emotions. He delights in truth at the very innermost part of our being. But it points to the fact that not only do we have a sinful nature, but we have an ultimate design for us. That God wants genuine truth and genuine wisdom in our lives. And yet we fall so woefully short of that. So verses 3 through 6 is his confession. And he does not dance around his responsibility. He does not uh, seek to make excuses for himself. He says, I have sinned because I am a sinner. How do you bring your confession to God? What excuses do you bring? How do you divert some of the responsibility? How do you downplay or sugarcoat the weight of your sin. This is his confession. And now, verses 7 through 12, we move on to his petition. And it's frozen again. So you know what I'm going to do? 
get an apple. No, I'm not going to do that. Is there an extra sheet actually somewhere? I'm going to I'm going to look on one that isn't being used. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, and look at your passage in front of you, and we're just going to ditch the screen for now, okay? All right. Here's the petition, verses 7 through 12. There are two main requests. Number one, he's asking us to, he's asking God, wash me. And we see that 7 through 9, all right? 7 through 9, wash me. 10 through 12, renew me. In the petitions, we see, we see indirectly the effect of sin in our lives as well. When we live in sin, we feel unclean, we feel broken, we feel depleted, we feel isolated, we feel empty of joy. And so what does David ask for? He says, purge me, wash me, let me hear joy and gladness, let the bones that you have broken rejoice, hide your face from my sin, blot out my iniquities, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me and restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Let's look at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop. Any of you Old Testament nerds out there, do you know hyssop and the significance of that, what it was used for? Not quite. I don't think so. Maybe. Yeah? That, was, that is one interesting connection. That at, at Passover, when they were called to spread the blood on the doorpost, they were called to do it specifically with hyssop branches, which is neat to think about that connection. Um, there's one other place where we see hyssop being used. What's that? Uh, possibly, possibly. That, yeah, that's another thing, that uh, when they, I think it was, was it when they offered him the wine? It was on a hyssop branch. Cleansing a leper? Yes, cleansing a leper. That's, that's the main area that we see it used. Leviticus chapter 14, verse 4, uh, says, The priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed with, from leprosy two live, clean birds and cedar wood and scarlet yarn and hyssop. And so I think that's probably the most direct allusion that it's being used here since here in verse 7, he's saying, purge me with hyssop, just like a leper, an unclean person, is purged with hyssop. And so he's using this figuratively to say, Lord, purge me with hyssop. That's uh, Leviticus 14, verse 4. Leviticus 14, verse 4. Another interesting reference for you to write down is Hebrews Chapter 19, or chapter 9, verses 19 through 28. Hebrews is all about connecting Old Testament pictures and sacrifices and, and applying them to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Listen to Hebrews 9, verses 19 through 28. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. 
But the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifice than these, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, that just as it is appointed to man once to die, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So right here in this phrase, purge me with hyssop, has so many connections, both Old Testament and New. That, that we are unclean, and we need to be cleansed, we need to be purified with hyssop. And we see ultimately in the New Testament that we, this is done, accomplished fully through the death, the blood of Jesus Christ. It says in the second line, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And of course, as New Testament Christians, we see direct connections to the death of Christ for our sins. We also read Isaiah 1, verse 18 Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. One more cross-reference. Revelation chapter 7. The, all the nations, the great multitude before the throne of every tribe, people's languages, they're all standing there in white robes. And, and, and they're asked, who are these ones? And it says to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's ultimately the blood of Christ, the blood of the spotless Lamb, that washes us and makes us whiter than snow. And notice also the confidence in these phrases. Purge me and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. What joy and gladness do you think he's wanting to hear? I don't think he's talking about his own joy and gladness. Otherwise, he would say, let me rejoice, joy and gladness. What do you think he's talking about, Rebecca? Yeah, I think that's definitely communicated in there. Um, what, what's he hearing? What, what do you think he's alluding to? Possibly. Yeah, I, I, think, I think when, we hear, when, when, he, when David talks about, I want to hear or, or be in the presence of or experience this, oftentimes he is alluding to worship in the house of God. And, and I think that's probably part of what he's alluding to here. I want to hear joy and gladness again. Isn't it true that oftentimes your sin keeps you from truly enjoying the worship of fellow believers? That the joy and gladness that you hear from other people just kind of falls flat on your own ears? It loses any comfort or meaning. And, and, but when you're forgiven and you're cleansed of that sin, you hear that joy and gladness again. I think that might be what he's referring to. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Uh, this reminds me of Psalm 32. We looked at this, another psalm of confession, where he talks about that God's conviction was heavy upon him and his bones wasted away through his groaning all the day long. God had, given, had brought the spiritual valley, the spiritual conviction on him so that he might confess his sin. And so he asks him, let me hear joy and gladness again. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. 
Let's look down at verse 10 and start to look at his request for renewal. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And here he shifts from not just cleansing, but renewal. That word create there, underline that word, because that's an interesting word. It's a specifically theological term in the Old Testament. That when you see this word create, God is almost always the subject of it. And it's used when God, it's the same word that's used when God creates the heavens. It's the same word used when God creates the new heavens and the new earth. He's asking for that same creative work to do a work on his heart. Only you can create a clean heart in me, O God, just like only you can create the world. How is our heart renewed? He asks for that, the second part of verse 10, renew a right spirit within me. How do we do that? How are we renewed? Through the Holy Spirit. How through the Holy Spirit? And how do we live through obedience? His word. Ephesians 20, or Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. Assuming that you have heard about him, that's Jesus Christ, and have taught in him, that is the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and the true righteousness and holiness. We know Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So what's he asking for? God, create in me a clean heart, only you can do it, and renew me through your word, through your law, through your commandments. Restore that in my life. Verse 11 can be troubling from a New Testament Christian's perspective. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Can we lose the Holy Spirit? It says right there we could. The Old Testament, okay. Um, what happened to, what did God do, what did the Spirit do for, for kings? The Spirit would come upon him. Did David see anybody in his life uh, have the spirit and the spirit removed? Saul. Saul, there you go, that's right. So he had seen this directly, hadn't he? So in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon leaders, come upon prophets, come upon kings. We call it the theocratic anointing of the spirit, enabling a certain person for a specific task leading his people. And David had just seen his predecessor, King Saul, have the Spirit come upon him. And then when King Saul had sinned, the Spirit left King Saul, and he was rejected as king. So really, verse 11, David is asking, God, don't let what happened to Saul happen to me. He's not, not, as New Testament believers, we do not ask that God take not his Holy Spirit from him. Ephesians 4.30 would be a good cross-reference to write down that we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God, but that same verse says, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That what we experience with the Holy Spirit is not a theocratic anointing, that coming upon us and then leaving us, 
but it is an indwelling of the Spirit that is permanent and lasting. And yes, we can grieve Him, but we cannot lose Him. So really, verse 11, if we're going to apply it for us today, David did not want to be held back from serving the Lord. He was scared about the possibility of him having his anointing removed, his opportunity to lead his people to to serve God in this role. He was scared of that. And he says, I don't want to be held back from serving the Lord. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Does it say that he wanted his salvation restored? The joy of his salvation restored. He did not lose his salvation. He wanted the joy of his salvation restored. Have you ever lost the joy of your salvation because you're living in sin? You say, you know, yes, I've, I, I'm, a, I'm saved. I believe in Jesus. But there's no joy in my life right now. We know what that feels like. What is the way to restore that joy? Forgiveness is the first step back to joy. Confession and forgiveness is the first step back to joy. Because when we live in sin, we do not experience the joy of our salvation. So he asks God, cleanse me, wash me, but also renew me and restore to me that joy. He asks to uphold me with a willing spirit. This is a, this is a hard phrase to interpret. Um, it can mean one of two things. That it's either referring to God's willing spirit uphold me with your willing spirit, or uphold me by giving me a willing spirit. Um, King James says, uphold me with thy free spirit. Uh, Nasby says, sustain me with a willing spirit. So both of those are communicating this is God's willing spirit to sustain him. The NIV says, grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. The Christian Standard Bible says, give me a willing spirit. So it's hard to understand what exactly is being described here, but the Hebrew word for willing spirit is used in, 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 in the Old Testament is used to describe the free will offering that someone would give in Israel. That, that those with a willing, spontaneous desire to sacrifice to the Lord could bring a peace offering as a free will gift. That outside the regularly prescribed sacrifices, if someone was just overjoyed and, 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 and eager to worship the Lord, he could bring a free will offering. That's, that's where that willing spirit word is communicated in the Old Testament. And, and for that reason, I, I think David is actually asking God to give him a spirit that is willing and eager to obey. Why do I think that? Partly because of context, the first phrase, and remember this is Hebrew poetry, so sometimes those lines will kind of communicate similar ideas. The first one is, restore to me the joy of your salvation. So change my spirit. The second one, give me a willing spirit. Give me an eager spirit. When we're in sin, our, our, we go through the motions, don't we? Well, I'll go to church. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll read my Bible. But there's none of that eager willingness because you're just weighed down. And so he wants God to uphold me and give me a willing spirit. I think that's what he's trying to communicate there. Any other thoughts, questions before we move ahead? And I'm kind of plowing through and there's no screen here, so I, I apologize. Thanks for hanging with me. Any, any questions or thoughts before we move ahead? Yes, sir. Like renovate. Yeah, no, there's definitely first. 
Yes, <laughs> that's good. Yeah, that's the, he's exactly right. Pastor Paul mentioned that that word, that word uh, renew in verse 10 um, carries the idea of renovation or building up. And uh, God has crushed him. <laughs> he has experienced his demo day. And now he is being renewed. He's being restored. I saw another hand. Stephanie. Yeah, and we even alluded to that even last Sunday in the message, this, when, our, when we refuse to forgive others, right? There's ways in which our prayers are hindered, and when we, when we regard, which means we treasure, we cherish iniquity in our hearts, refusing to confess, well, then, then we don't have that fellowship with God. We cannot have the propensity to, to, to walk up to God and say, well, give me what I want, while we're holding iniquity in our hearts. Well, let's look at the vow, finally, before we close. Verse 13 through 17, he describes, Lord, if you forgive me, this is what I'm going to commit my life to. And what does he commit his life to? Verse 13, what is he committing to? To teach. I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. In context, what do you think he's referring to when he says your ways? What ways? Word. Well, let's think of it this way. Um, what ways of God does he need to depend on in order, for, in order to receive forgiveness? His mercy. His forgiveness, right? His, his compassion, his love. That's what's bringing him to, to a place of confession. I saw one commentator put it like, if, he was, if the ways that he's talking about are God's justice, his wrath, um, he wouldn't need necessarily to experience the forgiveness of God in order to teach people those ways, because he's, he's experiencing those in the moment. But, but what he, the ways that he's trying to teach transgressors, I believe, is his mercy, his compassion, because what's the result? Sinners will return to you. Do you realize that one incredible privilege of you experience confessing your sin and experience the forgiveness that only God can give is that now you have a testimony of forgiveness. And when you proclaim that to others, it will result in other guilty sinners returning to God, following the same path that David did. Paul in the New Testament had this testimony. I was the chief of sinners. And God saved me, God forgave me, so that I could serve as an example to others, that they could also receive that same grace are you willing to use your testimony of God forgiving you to give hope to sinners? Verse 14, what, is, what else does he vow? Verse 14 and 15, really. What does he promise? He, 13, proclamation. Verse 14 through 15, what? Yes, praising, right? Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. And my mouth will declare your praise. And so his vow is, God, forgive me, and I will teach sinners your ways, and I will worship you with my renewed heart and with, my, with the joy of my salvation restored. Verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. 
Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now, is this saying, verse 16, that God hates sacrifices? No. How do we know that? What's that? Yeah, commanded them, right? It's, they were his idea, right? Also, look in verse 19. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Okay? Emphasis on right sacrifices. What kind of sacrifices does God hate? Fake ones. The ones with the wrong heart. Yeah, absolutely. You can read in the book of Isaiah and many other books of the Bible where God says, I hate your sacrifices. I despise your Sabbath days. I, 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 I despise all these motions you're going through to make it look like you're close to me when your heart is far from me. In fact, the two words for sacrifice here in verse 16, you do not delight in sacrifice. And then the second phrase, burnt offering. That, that most likely, the, the word for sacrifice there is the common term for sacrifice. Most frequently, it's referred to a peace offering. And I think the point is, he can't do that one yet. right? You have peace through forgiveness. So he needs forgiveness. The second one, a burnt offering, is the atoning sacrifice that follows forgiveness. And so he's saying, I think, forgiveness comes first. He's not saying sacrifices are, God hates sacrifices in the Old Testament system here. He's saying, you love forgiveness more. And that's what I need right now. I'm not going to go through the motions and try to earn your favor or seek to make it appear as if I'm worshiping you. You don't delight in that. You want a broken and a contrite spirit. Verse 17, those are the sacrifices of God. That's what you want. God hates hypocritical worship. He is not interested in the sacrifice of an unforgiven, unrepentant sinner. Or an unhumble, yeah, proud. We can come to church and we can sing songs and we can put a smile on our face and we can shake hands and say, how are you doing, brother? I'm going to pray for you. And we can teach in Sunday school and we can, we can do all of these things. And if we're doing that with a heart that is cherishing and hiding our sin, God hates that. You can say that a song of worship from a rebellious heart is just empty noise. God, God does not appreciate it. God does not receive it. God wants a broken and a contrite spirit. And here's the encouraging thing. Will God ever turn away, ever despise a broken and a contrite spirit? No, he won't. Even when that spirit, is, that heart is guilty of murder and adultery, he won't despise it. He will not turn it away. He will not turn you aside. So why would you hold back confession, hold back admitting your sin and bringing it before the Lord honestly and clearly when you know he will not despise it? When you know that he will grant you the joy of your salvation that will renew that right spirit within you as you bring that before the Lord honestly and humbly? Why don't we do it? Because you love the sin more? You, you, you're, you're upset about it because it kind of ruins, maybe makes you feel bad or 
Um, you don't want other people to know, but you love it. Why else wouldn't we do this? Pride. Okay? Anything else? We're stubborn. Yeah? Uh, we don't want other people to know that we're not perfect. Um, as if that would be a surprise to anybody. <laughs> we're prideful. We're stubborn. Um, and God's, we're selfish. God's saying, I'm not going to turn you away. I'm not going to despise it. You know what I will despise? Your acts of worship from your rebellious heart. I will despise those. Why would we hold this back? And I think as we conclude, that with that epilogue, do good to Zion and your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Again, he's speaking this from the perspective of a king. He's saying, God, restore your, your kingdom. Restore everything. Restore the walls, as you, even as you're restoring my heart. And then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings and bowls will be offered on your altar. He's communicating just a restoration of things, how things should be. As we conclude this, this treatment on confession, how do we apply this to our lives? Again, it's pretty obvious. Isn't it great that God's word is not as um, hidden or confusing as we sometimes make it out to be? It's really clear, isn't it? Confession and repentance must be a part of your life. We said when we looked through John, uh, Psalm 32, godly people repent. That's what godly people do. And, and confession and repentance is that first step back to joy. So if you're looking at your life, and over here you're thinking, I'm, I'm holding on to the sinful choice, the sinful way of life, and I'm keeping it secret, and I'm living in it, and, and I know it's there. My sin is ever before me. And over here, I'm experiencing emptiness. I'm experiencing conviction. I, I, I don't have the joy of my salvation. Um, have you connected those two yet? Have you connected those dots? And do you realize how simple it is to restore that joy? It's simply humbly with a broken and contrite spirit going before God and say, this is my sin. You are justified in your words. Whatever you say goes. I am willing to accept whatever consequences come my way, but I want the joy of my salvation restored. And Jesus says, I will not despise that. I will not reject that. And you have the opportunity to even use your testimony to teach others and praise God with a renewed and joyful spirit. I told you, we'd, you know, we might get convicted with this psalm. Um, examine your life. I need to examine my life. What do I need to confess? And as Christians, what an incredible, beautiful truth that our sins have been paid for once for all by the blood of Christ. That we confess not so that, not so that Christ may be sacrificed again for us, but so that we can remember the sacrifice once for all that paid for our sins, that, that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And as, as Paul says in Romans 6, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, we've died to sin. Why should we live any longer in it? So confess those. Don't live in your sin anymore, and God's going to give you the joy of your salvation. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for giving us your word, giving us your truth, and I pray 
that you would um, show us where in our life we're holding on to our sin. Give us the humility and the brokenness to bring those before you with open hands, confessing and admitting so that we can experience your compassion and your mercy and your cleansing. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for bearing with me with the technical difficulties. Um, Hopefully you're still able to track with the psalm and and benefit from it. Uh, Next week, again, is Awana registration, but we'll also be going through Psalm 62. Psalm 62 is the psalm we'll be studying together. You are dismissed.